Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cupper. And today on Review the Future, we are discussing The Truth of Fact, The Truth of Feeling, which is one of many short stories in Ted Chang's new collection called Exhalation. That's right. And we are big Ted Chang fans. So this was kind of an exciting one for me. I liked all the stories in this book, but um, this one I think stuck out as being one that uh, really does what Ted Chang does best, which is that he's he manages to walk this line between being a sort of philosophical sci-fi writer and somebody who takes the uh, harder parts of the sci-fi seriously. And I really liked that this was a sort of philosophical story but it also contained a, a clear and carefully explained version of how a particular kind of sort of software came to be in the world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, there, while there are many great stories in this collection, some of which we may review on other days, uh, let's just sort of zoom into the one that we're going to talk about today and the yeah. particular philosophical thought experiment that it entails. Uh, so, so first of all, we should say that this story is divided into an A story and a B story. Right. And they're sort of um, zipped up. You get w- one bit of one story, then you jump to the other, uh, back and forth until the end. So the A story is set in the future, and it involves a narrator and his daughter, Nicole, in particular, and it involves the release of a new technology, something that we've kind of discussed before, which is a a sort of perfect memory, right? So this is a world where there's already a pretty good augmented reality. There's already life logging. Life logging is pretty common among people uh, where they're just recording with a personal camera, pretty much everything that happens in their lives. And But the big new technology that gets released by this company, Whetstone, is called Remem. And this is essentially a better way to search the life logs that people have. Right, exactly. And he describes how uh, slowly over time, life logging technology has already gotten adopted, but then this software is really game-changing because, and this is something we've talked about on the podcast before, but it catalogs and makes searchable and makes uh, surfacing uh, as well because it's uh, it's integrated into your AR display, so it's literally showing you little bits of video in the corner of your eyes, uh, operating kind of like an external memory, stitching together everybody's life logs and making them um, show up when you might want them, which is a, a pretty specific and cool um, technical uh, supposition, I thought. Well, and the way it's described is that it's listening to your conversations. It's even listening to your subvocal utterances. Right. So if you say... Uh, what I did last Tuesday in conversation, then in the lower left corner of your vision, there will be an image of some of the things you did last Tuesday. And if you say, where are my keys? There will be an image in the lower left corner of your vision of you putting your keys in some dumb place that you've now forgotten. Uh, so it's it's constantly listening and trying to guess what you would need uh, before you uh, need to see it. Right. So he's imagining a very sophisticated semantic engine that can really figure out from context what it is that you're asking about. Um, but that's, that's what I think is cool about it. That seems like something that's not here yet, but you can imagine coming, um, within our lifetimes. Like, you know, you know, it doesn't seem, it's not alien technology or anything. It just feels like, um, advancement. So the A story is about the narrator grappling with the release of this new technology, 
uh, composing a typical think piece article about these things. I kind of like that he's sort of playing the role that so many people play today of, you know, being concerned about a new technology coming out. And he's very skeptical of this new technology. Um, and then, you know, it, it kind of evolves from there. But, you know, why don't we jump to now the, the B plot? Line? Right. Okay. So then the B plot takes place in the past. And it's a it's a fictionalized but researched story about a tribe in Africa that gets um, exposed to Europeans and therefore to the art of writing. And it's basically the story of how the introduction of writing into this tribe transforms their relationship with history and the truth. And so that's kind of the thematic question that goes through both stories is uh, is a more perfect record, whether through writing or through video logging and searching, um, better? What do we gain and what do we lose when we move to a more objective um, method of storing information? And how does it potentially change the way you think right. on some fundamental level and the way you interact with the world? Right, right, right. And a character in the B-plot is a, a, a young uh, tribesman who gets uh, taught how to write, and it does sort of affect him in the sense that he... He starts to think more like the Europeans in some ways. Okay, so let's just sort of jump into the the numerous issues that this brings up, which are fun to talk about. Yeah. Uh, and let's focus primarily, I mean, we can come back to the B plot line, but let's focus on the A plot line, because that is the actual future plot line. Yeah, and the B plot line seems to be there for a thematic purpose anyway, right? Like yes. It's, it's letting us, it's talking about one, the last time uh, we had a profound change in how we think uh, because of our memory uh, technology changing uh, in order to prime us to think that uh, this new uh, memory technology that's coming out isn't going to just go away and it's not a disaster. It's like writing. It's a powerful tool, um, but it's going to change us, right? So I think we can dispense with the B-plot after, after we cover that, right? I mean, I think there might be a few things I want to come back to with it, but it's certainly not the main area of interest here. Sure. Okay. So let's focus on the future. Part of setting the scene here for the future, uh, they do mention some other background technologies that are relevant. Because in the beginning, the uh, the narrator talks about how their daughter lacks the ability to write in the traditional sense of typing letter by letter uh, and spelling things out. And that's because what she does in this near future is she actually composes everything with sub-vocalization. Uh, and then edits everything that she's written with sort of gestures and eye movement. So she's still interacting with text, but not in the traditional way. Um, what did you What did you think of that? Do you, first of all, do you think that's like a plausible way that a new generation will handle text? And do you think that would actually be a, like a change that would matter? Well, I I think that change would matter because I do think there is an abstraction that's happening there where like most people um when they look at words they don't look at all the letters you know they recognize the shape of the word and i think it would have a subtle effect on how you interacted with language if you were not ever uh typing in or writing the letters but of course there's a difference between typing letters and writing them and even when we grew up it was much more expected that you would spend a lot of time in your life writing letters uh with a pen or pencil than we do we use a lot of uh, keyboards and uh, gestures to type letters, and it 
it doesn't seem to have ruined us. So I'm not sure. I think in school, you're going to always learn how a pen works and probably uh, some kind of a keyboard as well. Um, may not be physical buttons, but something that's like uh, an arrangement of letters that you peck at. But I'm not sure that you'll use that stuff that much in your life. Like, I think this might actually be a decent far enough term prediction that at a certain point, the subvocalization uh, and, and gestures get good enough that you can seamlessly use those to, uh, to communicate. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm a little bit unsure just because, you know, typing is actually quite fast. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I, I'm never quite as bullish on, on, on speech recognition. I guess sub-vocalization is something that's a little bit better because you don't have to say it out loud if you're composing in public. But again, I haven't ever gotten to really use sub-vocalization tech. So it shows up in all these stories, but I guess without having the hands-on uh, or, or <laughs> vocal cords on experience, I, I can't really say if I think it will catch on. Um, I'm a little bit suspicious of just you know getting rid of all the traditional sort of typing and, and button pressing interactions. You know, obviously they're on touch screens now, which is which is different enough. I feel like the role this mostly plays in the story is to show kind of that the main character is somebody who just generally laments these changes as they occur, because he, there's a sort of sadness about the fact that his his daughter doesn't know how to write traditionally. Yeah, he kind of denies being uh, nostalgic, but at the same time betrays his nostalgia. It's like a you know a cool complex character. But even though I'm unsure that people will shift to this style of writing, I don't think it would be a big change. And I don't think it would be something to be sad about. Certainly, I think it would be a pretty minor change. Uh, but maybe not so much as the, the main one, which I want to get to now, which is the, this sort of fluid memory recall. And there's a couple steps to get there, right? Because remember, first of all, you have to have the life logging in general, right? So right. let's just sort of talk about that prediction, which we we don't have yet, right? I mean, I think... Uh, we could have more of this now, but we don't have people with cameras constantly on all the time, you know, strapped to their bodies and et cetera, uh, and uploading things to the cloud. So maybe we just start with with that premise. I mean, how do you how are you feeling about this that these days? I mean, we've talked about it a lot in the past. Well, it's an interesting thing because I feel like we're very close to the technical capacity to have this if we want it, right? Um, we we don't quite have the bandwidth and battery power to really have like everybody with a pendant camera that's just going 24 seven or something like that. But we're close to that. We have things like GoPros and cell phones are, are pretty close to that. Well, and there's specific products that target this, right. That I've seen in the, in, in the past, like that mini moto or something, I think is one of them. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it doesn't seem that that's particularly caught on, but I mean, it's still, like you said, there, there's still battery problems and storage problems to the, deal with. Yeah. And bandwidth problems. Cause you gotta be uploading all of this, what through the cell network. You know I mean? If everybody decided to use it tomorrow, it wouldn't work. I mean, the only reason it works sort of now is cause not that many people are using it yet. And I think this is the kind of thing that all these problems go away with time. So if culture wants life logging, we'll get it. <laughs> I think that's pretty clear. What I don't think is clear is that um, that culture wants it. I think for some people, there is a tremendous value to um, having a lot of attention focused on them through through digital media. Uh, but that's not true for most folks, I don't well, think. Well, it doesn't have to be made public, though, because that's the next thing I want to talk about. Let's let's just say for the moment that you can set it all to private, so it's not about putting attention on yourself. Right. Then that's just about keeping records. And I and I think that's the same thing is that, you know, the more frictionless it becomes to keep records, I think more people will do it. But there's still, I think, some limit 
uh, some upper limit that you can't get past where people won't want it anymore. And I like the way that this story dealt with that, actually, which is that the main character, for example, is not a life logger, right? The narrator. Um, but when he decides to try out this new software, the Remem software that catalogs your stuff and makes it searchable, it also has the option of asking other people and public feeds for access, and you can cobble together a life log from other people's perspectives, which ends up being good enough for him to do the experiment that he wants to do. And that is where this starts to get more plausible to me. It's less about individuals logging their whole lives, but more places and uh, brands and other and institutions and things having local surveillance and local record keeping for their own purposes. And then that all getting kind of shared and cataloged into something where we all can be found feels a little bit more plausible to me. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I did want to talk about that. Uh, and I, you know, obviously they have to get access to it. So again, it comes down to this issue of whether this stuff is being made public by default, which is something that I'm not as sure about as I used to be, because it just felt like that was sort of the default mode of the internet for so many years. Right. And it still kind of is, right? It's still like how a lot of our like internet platforms are built is just on this assumption that everything will be made sort of public, right? And right. like everything will be in this mode of speaking to all people at once. Um, but I'm not sure that that will be like the dominant paradigm by the time we get to this mainstream life logging. Yeah. And also on the mainstream point, like, let's just do sort of an in informal poll of two people here, right? Like, would you, if you had access to this, would you wear the camera all the time? And if you could upload it, would you, well, two questions. One, would you record everything? And two, would you make it public? I think I'd not, I would not be inclined to record everything or make it public. And I think social norms would probably be very influential uh, on me, uh, which is that if, a, if everyone else were recording and making it public, then I suspect I would eventually do that too uh, because I'd feel some pressure to. But uh, I don't, uh, you know, look, I, I think I am <laughs> sympathetic to the narrator in that I too was raised in the world of organic memory. I'm comfortable with my phone being like an external brain, but uh, the idea of a software constantly suggesting to me that I look at video of my own past sounds a little bit like a, a torture scenario. <laughs> well, hang on. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we're, we're jumping ahead to the particular way that the remem search algorithm works, yeah. which I have problems with too. But just to answer the, the first question, I would absolutely do the recording of everything if I could. In fact, I've considered just you know, doing trial runs of the products that are out there just out of curiosity uh -huh. um, because I'd love to have that record if it was practical to keep it. Now, I would definitely have it private, essentially, right, right. pretty much nonstop. And right. the more I think about the practicalities of this, that is kind of, unless you're a, you know, uh, someone trying to be an internet celebrity, it seems like that's got to be the default mode for people because otherwise... You've got to, like, it seems easier to have it off all the time and then switch it on to public when you want to go public. Yeah, yeah. Um, rather than to have it be the reverse. Right. So I don't know that we could assume that all, for example, arguments that happen between fathers and daughters, as happens in this story, right. would automatically be made public. Uh, I would assume that would default to private. It's, it's not automatic, right? I, th I believe in the story it's... Um that the, the software asks for permission, uh, sort of like a friend request style. Right, but if permission is granted, it's not... I mean, maybe she granted it. Just, yeah. Just, I forget that part. I'm pretty sure that they do... 
and that in the story it's it's covered as if she has granted him that access. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, obviously, if you got a request from a friend or relative, that put, puts an interesting <laughs> spin on it because then if you say no, you look like you're hiding something. Well, right? I, so. I, I, I'm just laughing because I have, decri- I have declined a relative's social media request before because I decided I didn't want to share what was on there with that relative, you know? I mean, so I guess, yeah, you could definitely imagine somebody... Um, not feeling like that's the space for for your dad to be looking in on or whatever, but it does. But it does, it, you know, create pressure, right. like social pressure yes. on people to say yes. So actually, that sort of like uh, pushes towards the idea that maybe this stuff will end up. And I don't mean all like one hundred percent public, but I mean like available to get in the way that happens in the story, right? right. Where essentially a crawler goes out there. And even though he, the main character hasn't been life-logging his whole life, they're able to stitch together a pretty good record of many parts of their life by collecting other people's feeds um, and getting that permission. That was the sort of thing that I wasn't like entirely sure you'd be able to get um, yeah. like that easily. Now, I mean, and it would, I feel like it'd be pretty dependent on particular people. But, but, but let's, let's kind of move on to the next step, right? Like okay. after the live logging, which is the, the search features. Right, right. Because that's really the new technology here. I mean, in a way, the live logging that he describes is, it's super now. It's a little bit more than now, but it's not that different from what we do with our cell phones now. But the search feature is really quite different. It's like what Google Assistant tries to do with your, you know, web search results, but being applied to your own memory in real time. Yeah, and that's, I think, I guess, because there must have been search before. Like, that's the thing that's weird, right? I mean, like, I mean, there's search now, right? Like, every database has some sort of search. So, I mean, to some extent, having pervasive life logging and pretty good search of it seem like they should be concurrent technologies. This is just a step up in the immediacy of it, which I think the idea of the story is to make it as much as like actual memory, as fluid as actual memory as possible. For right, the, right. Like, conceit to work um but this particular version of it where you're just talking about something and it likes it's like hey did you mean this in the left corner of your vision i don't know <laughs> that's I, I kind of agree with you that that seems annoying yeah i mean like different people have different tolerances for watching video of themselves but my tolerance for that's pretty low and uh i just that sounds terrible well it'd be from your point of view well, it wouldn't be entirely from your point of view, first off, because this is still cobbled together from multiple sources. And in, in the case of this narrator, again, none of it's from his point of view. It's all... Wouldn't it be searching your own log primarily? Again, unless it's getting, like, aggressively getting permissions from other people. It seemed to me that it is always stitching everything together. So the more you log, the more it would be from your point of view. But, uh, uh, you know, up to and including all of it, I guess, if you're always logging but it did seem like it was stitching the other other stuff. Yeah, I think it being from your own point of view would make it more tolerable because <laughs> at least you don't have to look at yourself. But uh, even that, I'm not sure that people would choose it. You know, when he goes through in the story and he tells the story of the, the couple that's fighting uh, and they're just using it to prove each other wrong, and that uh, story also reminded me of that Black Mirror episode from season mm-hmm. one, the one that Jesse Armstrong wrote, that's about uh, the grain. Yeah. Uh, the implant very similar kind of story where he's obsessed with whether his wife cheated on him or something like that and he keeps going like back. replaying little moments yeah right right and uh and he keeps he's got this thing in his memory that you know he should just erase the memory so he can stop 
torturing himself about it. You know, he could easily erase the file, but he doesn't want to do that. He just, you know, uh, keeps torturing himself. It, it made me think that culture wouldn't choose to use it in this way, basically. It made me think that even if that was a fad or something, it wouldn't be the long-term way that this went. Well, it's like, it's a push-pull question, right? It's like, yeah. do you want your, like, technology just presenting itself to you versus do you want, like, you know, to say, like, hey, computer, give me something now because I'm asking for it. Right, right. right? And I, I think... Uh, again, this is one of these things where we've been defaulting to the push thing, just like we've been defaulting to the always public thing. But I already kind of feel the backlash against that, you know, is pretty well underway. Well, there's intellectual backlash against it, but I think it's questionable whether the market is actually rejecting it. Well, there's pressures like advertising and so on that, right. well, that work against this. Like the reason push is so popular is that the companies that are offering push services benefit from getting more of your attention. So if it works, if the push works, then they're going to use it. And what Chang says in the story through the spokesperson for the Remem company is that people can uh, configure it to interrupt less or to have less what she calls sensitivity to what they're saying, but that in their trials in the company, they've seen people doing the opposite. So his supposition is that culture is going to uh, actually like it when this software gets better at guessing what they want to see and um, that they're going to adopt it more. And I, I guess I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think it's a it's a strong choice and I appreciated that it was in the story, which I, you know, is cool. Uh, he makes clear what his assumption is. But I'm not sure I think that's a good assumption. Well, something that's very much missing, right, from the story that's it would be highly relevant to this question is what is Remem's business model, right? I mean, right. do you do you purchase Remem with a subscription? Does Remem is it ad supported? Is it in you know weird startup mode where it's just losing money and not making any money at this point because of some sort of like investment down the line? That it's aiming for, or right? is it so mining like, your memories for advertising ooh. opportunities? <laughs> Probably that one, yeah. Right, because I mean, it's uh, it feels like a Google-like service to me. You know, the way that it surfaces results and and, and searches giant piles of data. And what if it what if it was Google that introduced this, and they were just going through everything you'd ever said or done, and using a sophisticated AI to figure out what products you would buy and, you know, what you could be nudged into doing. Well, so let's play that one out, yeah. right? Because in that case, like, they really, really want you to click yes to the give remem permission to access your life logs, right? Right. Once they've done convinced you to do that, right, as long as you don't go and uncheck that box later, they're good. They've got what they need, right? They've got the data on you to market to you. Yep. For the most part. So at that point, they don't necessarily need to push these things into your field of vision. They could, you know, essentially just try to adapt to whatever you want as much as possible just so that you don't get annoyed by the thing and then take away its permissions, right? Right. Well, they would want to increase your engagement with it too, right? Because the more everyone uses it, the better it works on everyone. So there'd be some scale effect there. But yeah, they just want you to keep using it and not stop using it. You mean like the learning algorithm that like figures out how to show you the right things yeah. needs people to engage with it? Yeah, that's actually that's another consideration, right? It's like how does this program get better, right? And right. that doesn't it doesn't even require any kind of like it's showing you ads model. 
Well, that he he supposes at least something about it, which is that there's settings and then there's also, you know, it's also learning from your behavior. So, the, you know, it's similar to the way AIs on the Internet work now. You know, the, if you click the thing, you're going to see more of that type of stuff, that sort of thing. Right. OK. So like by like you're training it somehow, thumbs upping, thumbs downing and so on. Right. And then you have some global commands as well that you can. So you can override some of your worst tendencies, maybe a little bit, but it's basically set up to, uh, you know, keep you engaged. It, it that seems to be the way it works. You know, we had a conversation a while back about this sort of how to train your algorithm thing, right? <laughs> you know, and I just don't know that I, that that's caught on at all, right? I mean, that was sort of my like I wasn't sort of intended as a prediction, but we were discussing that that's you know sort of the way you have to interact with this stuff. Um, is just sort of like treat it like this dog you're training to like fetch you the right things at the right time. But I don't like, I have yet to encounter anybody else that sort of like engages with their stuff that way um, or sort of enjoys engaging with their stuff that way. So I gotta, I gotta wonder if that paradigm is going to hang on I, as well. Right. Or if like there's some better way to handle that. Right. Well, um, increasingly this stuff's all invisible to the user and, uh, Unfortunately, I don't think people even realize that they can train the algorithms. So I think that's a big barrier. But I don't know whether that you know changes or not. <laughs> Doesn't seem like it. Now I, I do want to talk about some of the concerns of the narrator. I think they get you know I think they get problematized because you know Ted Chang is not the narrator here. Uh, he you can tell he's got some distance from the narrator, and the narrator of course like learns a bit of a lesson over the course of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but, but, you know, initially for his think piece about, you know, how remem is maybe a bad thing, um, the narrator has certain concerns and, uh, I sort of wanted to talk about those. Uh, I think they're pretty easy to sort of dismiss at least a lot of them, right? Like, so one of them was, um, you know, he talks about how our memory, you know, if we, if we had perfect recall of everything, uh, our memory would be, you know, full of facts, but devoid of feeling. Um, and he says, you know, there's no way to assign emotional weight to like that particular day that stands out in your past. That's like a lovely memory you like to think back on. And this sort of like personal identity is wrapped up in the way we sort of myth make about ourselves based on our imperfect memories. I mean, what did you make of this? I, I did not find that super convincing. The part of that, I think it's in the same paragraph. Uh, is this where he, he says something along the lines of cameras are unable to portray emotional states or something uh which i found to be just a weirdly false <laughs> uh statement well they can't portray your brain state at the time like the particular like soup of chemicals that made that a magical no moment, but right? the arts of cinematography and photography kind of put the lie to the idea that you can't use a camera to transmit an emotional state right i mean obviously you you can <laughs> um people do all the time and right. I, I and i think honestly they do according to certain um rules and uh, heuristics of photography that could probably be programmed. So you could honestly even probably have a computer correctly uh, imply the emotional state just through framing and um, transforming of angles uh, if it had sufficiently enough footage. Are you saying it would add score music to your memories based upon the affect? I'm saying it could add cinematography. I'm saying like if we let's say we have not just life logging, but uh, you know, light field photography, life logging, where you can move the camera around in the space after the fact. Or let's say there's uh, uh, each room has a hundred cameras in it, all pointed in different directions, and you can um, create a, a photo photogrammetric uh, map 
you know, of the room from all that video. Well, then why on earth couldn't a camera, if it if it detects uh, through other means that you're feeling small, why can't it put you so you're small in the frame and change the lighting so that it looks like you're dark and the uh, other person's uh, brighter? I mean, I, I think it absolutely can do those things. I, 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 I'm... Of course, a human being can do those things with a camera, no, no question. But I, I, I'm not even convinced that a computer, uh, elegantly programmed, couldn't do those things relatively well uh, most of the time. Well, in the primordial version of this, right, is that you know I use Google Photos and I upload a bunch of stuff there, and then it, you know, it tries to do its automatic, you know, movie making out of certain days of my life right. and set it to score music and and so on. I mean, it's not quite cha- able to change the angle with this light field technology that we don't have, but right. um, it is kind of trying to curate for me and shape memories for me. I think it does a pretty crappy job, um, you know, 90% of the time, but um, every once in a while it does something that's like, I'm like, oh, that's cute, right. Google, that's that's okay. Well, every once in a while, just the uh, Facebook algorithm of here's what you did X number of years ago on this day right. works. I mean, and that's basically just a, just a slot machine pull. I mean, it just happens to be that day um but every once in a while that's enough oh that was three years ago and you know you're you're feeling something so i don't know i guess i i i understand what he's saying is that there's something uh inhuman and cold about the surveillance cameras but i actually think a sufficiently um powerful program could definitely use emotional cues from you and then apply them to the material in a way that is emotionally um, affecting the from you. Well, okay. So here's the thing though. I, I, I think that the narrator character, if I can sort of jump into their body for a second, would still push back against what you said, right? Because this sort of shaping this like editing of the memories, right. Is coming from outside, right. It's coming from this algorithm, this like company whetstone that makes remem. Right. Right. Now maybe it's trying to interpret what you want, but that's, bound to be imperfect in any event it's heavily mediated and different than the kind of like sort of personal myth making that you can do today when you're sort of the only person that sort of you know is in charge of your own memories well it's certainly no more imperfect than your own internal process for this which is inherently lossy which is kind of the point of it but it is certainly all those other things it's external and it's different in in kind from what you're doing you know it's it's a different process from what you're doing as well so it may have a different result. Um, you know, I mean, look, I'm not saying it wouldn't change things. I'm just not convinced that it lacks emotion just because it comes somewhat exogenously. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, like the smaller critique that I agree with is that it's not devoid of feeling because people, like you said, still have facial expressions and so on. And, you know, I recently uncovered some video of myself when I was 12 that I didn't know my family had. And, uh, I mean, it didn't, I don't think it like, negatively or changed my memories or like really changed them at all. It just in a way it sort of like reminded me of other like adjacent things that had happened. Um, it didn't seem devoid of feeling to have suddenly video of something I didn't know I had. Sure. Just as a random anecdotal example. And then as far as assigning emotional weight to a particular moment or day, I mean, you just curate your memories, you'd bookmark them same as you do with anything digital today if you want to. So yeah, I, I, I didn't agree with this, but, um, a related question, though, that I that I thought of is like, what do you think this does to nostalgia, right? Because nostalgia is such a like, it feels like such a big thing, at least in consumer culture right now, right? It's just in terms of how things are marketed, right? Uh, 
like, does this do anything to undermine that or is it just not effective? Well, I feel like it's almost marketed with the assumption that everyone is nostalgic, right? I mean, it, 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 if, if it really works the way they say, and it's always surfacing your past whenever it's relevant, it's almost like forcing you into a state of nostalgia. But if you're constantly connected with the like perfect record of your past, does like, does the past use like lose like some of its like weird sort of shimmery power to attract you? Right. Like, I mean, yeah, I'm not sure that our imperfect memories are the source of our nostalgia. So I guess I, I'm not sure that it would. I think that being in contact with images of the past, even uh, perfectly correct ones, would continue to um, cause us to think of the past, which would, I think, reinforce nostalgia more than, you know, our lack of a rosy picture or something looking backward would would, would uh, decrease our connection to it. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I actually think the internet in general has increased nostalgia just by making our own recent past more searchable and connected, actually. I feel like nostalgia feels stronger now than even 10 years ago in culture. Yeah, I guess it does. I, I guess we, we've got a better record now, and nostalgia seems like it's... I mean, it's hard to know if it's actually increasing or if it's just increasing for people that are our age, but uh, it does seem like it's increasing from my point of view. Yeah, that's anecdotal, Um, but that's what it seems like at the moment. It could be cyclical, too. I mean, maybe it's like Alan Moore says in Watchmen, you know, you do nostalgia and then when that gets boring, you do the future for a few years and then you go back and forth. I mean, so maybe we're just in a nostalgia cycle because uh, we've got we've gone backwards looking at so many things um, in this world right now. Um, But uh, it's hard to say. Uh, I don't know for sure. Another concern that the uh, author expresses in the beginning, but then I think by the end of the story would have a different view on, uh, is that having this kind of perfect recall is going to make forgiveness harder. Right. Uh, because like, let's say, you, you know, you were bullied when you were a certain age and by someone, and maybe that bully like later reforms and apologizes or whatever, but you still have like complete access to this like moment where they humiliated you or whatever. Right. And like you can sort of like keep picking at the wound uh, and and never quite heal it, um, in in sort of like the opposite of the feedback loop that happens now. I mean, he describes sort of the the feedback loop ne- of now as like sort of like you know the, your memory gets you know a little softer, and so then like you know you care about it less, and then actually you remember it worse, right? Because now you're less focused on it, and and it all sort of fades away, right? right. Whereas this, you know, you could obsess over. Uh, some wrong that was done to you. There's a connection to this to uh, the way that it uh, is now for people who live in the public eye, right? Because they are mm-hmm. already having their lives more or less logged and uh, and searchable. Uh, and what happens if they make a serious transgression often is that they are not forgiven and that they, uh, you know, they don't... Um, it's a little different because nobody, I don't think, is uh, entitled to being famous or something like that. But you are entitled to like live your life. So when that ha- starts to happen to everybody, um, it may be a problem. But uh, yeah, I-, I do think there is some legitimacy to this, even though you're right that the narrator changes his mind. But I think there is some legitimacy to the fact that, uh, I mean, this is what the European Union was talking about when they did their very... Um, I think well-intentioned but poorly designed uh, regulations recently about the right to be forgotten is that uh, some transgressions um, 
are hard to forgive if the record persists, but don't actually rise to the level of, you know, uh, being something that should follow you forever. I'm pretty skeptical of this, I think. Um, I mean, I, I don't doubt that a certain person could, like, you know, obsess over something that was done to them, right? Uh, and, and sort of keep that trauma alive, you know, in some sort of unhealthy manner. Uh, but from the perspective of someone who's done something wrong, like even a celebrity, I feel like... I, I feel like even with celebrities, it, it does kind of fade, right? I mean, they're still going to get reminded of it. I mean, that's part of the, the, the thing about, you know, having random people on the street know you. I mean, that's its own sort of set of problems. But I just think, like, even if you can watch the moment over and over again, I think in a way that's desensitizing, right? I mean, that's in some ways, like, that's one of the ways that you could deal with trauma now, right? right. Like, that's one of the, like, psychological options for dealing with trauma is to just overexpose people to it until it loses its power. So I think like I think there's as much potential for that as there is of like keeping the trauma alive. Well, I'm I'm I share your skepticism that watching something over and over necessarily re-traumatizes you, right? And I mean, and this is actually the kind of the crux of the story. Do we want to get into this? I mean, I feel like it's worth getting into, but it will spoil the story. So maybe yeah, we should... yeah I, I think go ahead. So, I think spoiler alert. Spoiler but alert, ahead. but I, I think this is worth it. So the narrator ultimately in uh, doing his experiment um, does watch a video of a fight that was very raw for him between him and his daughter that happened many years before. And the software informs him. And this was like a, a, a great moment for me because I was reading this story and I was getting annoyed with it <laughs> because I was starting to wish that it would do this thing. And this is one of those great times when you're wishing a story will do something and then it does it. It just does it for you. And it, it covered the, exactly the thing I was hoping it would get into, which is that uh, it shows him that he was wrong. He misremembered what had gone down. And in fact, he reversed it. So he thought that she had said something really hateful to him, but actually he had said it to her. And once uh, first he's in denial about it for a minute, but then he gets over the denial because this is a record and he realizes that he has been lying to himself and, uh, you know, into his daughter for a long time. Uh, and that leads him to uh, to con confront it and, and make a change. It, it reminds me of a kind of rationalist sort of truism that you hear sometimes. I forget which of those rationalist guys originally said this, but something along the lines of if you're a rationalist, you should love being wrong, right? Because that's when you actually get a chance to learn something. Uh, and you have to, it's, it's hard as a human to learn to love being wrong because we're, we, we want to be right. Um, but you don't really get anything out of being right. Uh, and you learn something important when you find out that you've been wrong. So that was, I think, uh, the coolest part of this story was that the technology allows this skeptical guy to realize a major way that he has been wrong in something. And he realizes that he really did want to know that. Yeah, and that's sort of the moral, I, I guess you could say, or, or the final point of the story, yep. right? Is that he realizes that the technology allows you to embrace your own fallibility and hopefully be less judgmental of others in the process, right? Because you realize that, wow, I'm very imperfect because I have this record of me being so. Right. Um, and I think there's something to that, and and but although maybe that leads to a place we've talked about before, which is like generally speaking, when we have this perfect record of everyone uh, doing bad things, right? Uh, how does society adapt to that? 
right? I mean, we've we've this is ground we've covered before. I mean, we we actually like recently talked about this on the Hypocalypse right uh, podcast. Um, and I noticed when uh, when when Robin Hansen blogged about this particular story, he didn't have that much to say, but he did sort of point out that it didn't deal with all of the issues exactly. And this was one of the ones he he mentioned, um, which is that you know everybody has done things that are would be like if they were exposed to everyone else, right, would make them look bad, yeah. right, by like our current like laws and sometimes just social norms. Right. So then the, the question is, you know, once you know uh, what everyone else has done wrong and what you've done wrong, and once that's like easily shared, you kind of have three options, right? Uh, I mean, w- one option is that you can, you can adjust the rules to be more reasonable, right? right? And that's kind of what the story is ending on. Like it, maybe it makes you less judgmental to realize that, oh man, I've messed up, Right. Um, so maybe uh, maybe we shouldn't have such strict uh, rules about not forgiving people for you know minor social wrongs or you know if it's in more of a legal context you know maybe we should have uh, drug laws that aren't so crazy or whatever it is right right, right. or you know maybe uh, you know even more fraught issues like the ones that Robin Hanson talks about in his article like sexual harassment right like maybe you know what should our policy be on on forgiving that over time uh, so. You know, we could adjust the rules, right? Or we could try to like limit the technology, right? We could all sure. agree that we have this perfect record, but we're just not going to use it ninety percent of the time. Or we're not going to share it with the government, right? I mean, some of the. Or we're not going to share it with each other, right? Or we're not like, going to share it with each other. Easily right. grant right. permission, right? Right. Um, so if I was there, I have the record, but and I I had my life logger on, but I'm not just going to be able to like grab you know random information about people I don't know. Um, or I I think the third option is that you you know sort of just in you just go right ahead with the stricter enforcement of these rules and the result is that everybody is like kind of stressed out all the time and like feels like they're just on the edge of being like caught and called out for some perceived crime well you're right either you become a draconian dystopia or you do that for a short period of time and it leads to some kind of backlash right because i mean you can't have I mean, think of, we've talked about this before. Think about if we just had perfect enforcement of speed limits, right? Just how clogged up the courts would be. It would be uh, impracticable um, with our system. Right. And I, and I think with... So the distinction that, that Robin Hanson made in the Hypocalypse article was that there's like... He's more worried about the things that... The rules that he thinks we have just for signaling purposes rather than practical benefit. Right. So some of... Like speed limits, I think, probably falls in that practical area where like that's... That's there to serve a purpose, right? That's there to bring road casualties down and so on. Right. Um, and so, you know, yeah, if practically speaking, everybody is getting speeding tickets overnight, we probably can adjust to, to make that not the case. Right. Um, again, always hard to talk about this because why don't we have self-driving cars in this future? We probably do, but that's an aside. Right. Uh, so, but yeah, for things that are more like social norms in general... It's harder to say, I guess. Um, I still kind of am in the camp that will probably adjust rather than make everyone feel terrible because <laughs> that just doesn't seem like an equilibrium that can stand. Yeah, but there are some issues on which it's too sensitive or people are too unwilling to um, you know, s- seem to be tacitly uh, supporting something that they don't support where uh, we're going to have a bad equilibrium. I think, I think for most things, you're probably right. I think for most things, we're just going to adjust. But then there's going to be some sticky things where it's not 
like he says, it's not totally practicable or it's not for practical pur- purposes rather. And, and we're going to get stuck with, uh, with some really bad laws that get over enforced. Well, and again, we could, there's sort of the third option, right? Which is that we like, don't use the tech as much. Right. Yeah. Well, that doesn't seem likely to happen. Does it? Yeah. I, 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 I pretend to lean against that. I mean, I guess the, the like, what would be a fraught example? It'd be like racism, right? Like what if everyone had like a racism scorecard, right? <laughs> <laughs> like like what yeah. is what is that what does that mean right and so like everyone's got you know probably not a perfect grade but i don't know i mean at that i mean once if if not everybody if everybody doesn't have a perfect grade then like i mean how at a certain point like how can you demonize people for crimes that you are have committed yourself right on the record so well right on the record is the key distinction there of course uh yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens to kind of traditional hypocrites you know the kind of the the closeted politician that passes anti-gay laws or that sort of thing you know those kind of traditional hypocrites will have a hard time in this uh yeah this coming world uh but i don't know i think we may still find that um you know moral panic survives it um in one way or another i don't know and of course we're dealing with bigger societal issues which really the story doesn't doesn't talk about at all right it's a very personal story yeah it's just really about misremembering an argument um, and the consequences of, of just that one thing, you know, because it was an argument they never talked about again, it was possible for him to misremember it until this technology changed that. And then that changed his view of, uh, of himself and his daughter and the whole situation. And that's, that's really all that happens in it. But it, it, I think it's a testament to how good a story is. It, it gives you a lot philosophically to think about from there. Now here's a different thing, right? Like setting aside sort of what actually happens when someone uh, records you doing something less than perfect and then is able to throw it in your face for the rest of time, right? Uh-huh. Setting aside like that sort of exact treatment, what about just the fact that you're being recorded all the time? I mean, we've kind of talked about this, but not a ton, right? Like w- this feeling of you're always performing. Right. Uh, does that take a toll? Or does that just like kind of just quickly normalize? What, I mean, what do you make of that? My guess is that it normalizes as soon as the technology itself becomes unobtrusive. So uh, if the life logging technology consists of like a, a quadcopter drone that flies two feet from your face and frames your face in a perfect uh, rule of thirds uh, sh- centered shot uh, at all times, uh, you're going to be extremely distracted by that. And I don't think any amount of time will completely um, normalize it. But if it's small enough and unobtrusive enough, it's just stuck in the corners or it's floating around in the air or something like that, and you just don't even really have to think about it, um, I think that goes away pretty fast. I think that people are not inherently paranoid and will normalized to any environment um, as long as a lens isn't being shoved in our eyes all the time. I just had a funny thought about this, though, as to how it might affect behavior. How? Um, which is that, so you know those uh, many, many movies or uh, TV shows have this conceit where uh, periodically a character will talk to the camera. Right. And and sometimes it will even happen you know, with continuity with the scene where they're talking to other people. So it, it makes no sense. It makes only sort of a magical sense. Right, uh, right. In fact, I'm uh, I watched the first few episodes of, of Fleabag, Fleabag the other day. Fleabag is just and it, coming to my mind, yeah. Exactly, yeah. It, it uses that device quite a lot. Yep. 
Uh, and I was just thinking, well, if you know you're being recorded and it's public all the time, wouldn't you just, I mean, you wouldn't literally do it while other people are in the room in the sort of extreme way it happens on that particular show. But certainly like when someone leaves the room, you might just like talk to the camera and like narrate, like, like for the record, right? Like, like, here's what I think is going on, you know, or like, you know, giving some added context, like knowing that, like, if this is looked at later, you want to make sure you have the last word and or frame it a certain way. Yeah, I wonder if social norms would come up around that, because I feel like people do that to some extent now in their social media posting and stuff. But uh, I I wonder if there if doing that wouldn't feel presumptuous as if you are assuming you have a large audience or something like that, because it, it seems like you're your closest friends, your sort of like social media audience probably doesn't need that from you. They probably know what's going on. They have enough context, but that seems like something you'd offer to, if you were more of like a a famous person or, you know, something like that. I mean, it's, it's a little different. I, and I would say that like, you know, on social media, many people who aren't famous and do not have a lot of followers still use this sort of one to many voice, right? Because they, they're aping that style. Yes, I agree with that. Yes, but I think there is some norm against it, though. I think you're right that some people do it, but I think there's some social enforcement against doing that if you're not already famous. No? There's there's some. I, not a lot, though. I feel like it's pretty common. But, mm. but I mean... I, I, but I don't know, like that, uh, that I think is actually still sort of different in kind than this. Because, for example, you might be doing this for your own benefit, right? It might be like a like a... Right. Like a note to self, right? Or like a way to like contextualize this yourself later when you when you your you look back on it, right? Right. right. Uh, or it might be more of like a defense mechanism, right? Like I don't know if anyone's gonna look at it, but in case they do, <laughs> right? Because it. anyone anyone can look back at anything. I'm gonna pre-spin it, so it's not like <laughs> I'm not talking to everyone. I'm just talking to like the one investigator that goes back to look at this moment and or reporter or whoever, right? Well, that's an interesting idea. I'm not sure, but I can see what you're saying. Yeah. Another like uh, thought I had, and this is this is more my concern, I think. And, and again, this is not the type of thing uh, that Chan gets into. Is that if everyone uses this record, right? Now the past is editable, right? Uh, you know, now today it's forgettable, right? So that's one thing, right? right? But we all, uh, but now it becomes editable potentially by a third party right right like a like a government uh or a corporation right right i still think if the life logging is pervasive enough it is difficult to uh control all of the records at the same time if we have very big tech monopolies in this future like we do now and there's just like at most maybe two companies that do this kind of life logging slash remem stuff. Um, that is a leverage point, and pr- particularly if you've got uh, like a more totalitarian, uh, authoritarian government, um, where you could just literally rewrite the past for mo- many, many people at once. Right. Well, and as we talked about in our um, fakes episode, it, sometimes you don't even need to do it for too many people, right? If you can just. Uh, Uh, alter the past for just the right ambassador or something for the right few moments and fool them for long enough, uh, that could be enough to start a war or or do other kinds of terrible things. Sure. Like, I mean, you know, we're having a big cultural conversation about disinformation today and it is far from perfect. Yeah. 
so yeah, I mean, there could be there could be cracks in the veneer. Uh, there could be glitches. There could be, you know, my memory was hacked, but it wasn't like quite perfectly done. Yep. But a wide swath of the population is is you know got the the state message, so to speak. Um, that might just be enough. Exactly. Uh, and uh, yeah, so let's hope that we don't live in that future. But it well, is a concern I thought about. Yeah, I mean, it's just a concern um, more generally as everything uh, gets put online it becomes malleable in that way and so we have to make sure we are resilient both in our security systems and in having multiple you know competitive uh institutions and firms that carry data too so that everything's not in you know one point of failure like you're saying maybe let's like very quickly just return to the the b story for a second okay yeah sure um because i for the most part i didn't think the b story uh, analogy, it like analogizes that well, right? That sort of the arrival of learning how to read and write has too much to say about this sort of perfect memory recall. Uh, like for, because I, I think a lot of that B plot is about uh, what happens when you learn to write specifically, right? Like the, the, the main characters sort of dramatize like learning what a word is, right? Because they never sort of conceived of like these sort of atoms of conversation that are called words. Right. Um, and and the, uh, the main character also learns like what it is to like actually compose something before you say it, right? In a very exact form rather than always being in this more improvisational mode. Yeah. And for what it's worth, I think that's a dramatization there, right? I mean, I'm pretty sure people compose things in their minds before they had written language well and i think the other issue is that um because i was trying to say like well, what is how can i like you know what how does this analogize to the future tech and i was like well since we're talking about writing you'd have to be writing with memory right oh i think it analogizes more simply just in that it's an external memory aid no no i get that part yeah. but i but i was trying to take these specific nuggets that i thought were interesting I from see. the b story yeah like these these sort of changes of thought pattern that the main character underwent trying to map those onto the a story mm-hmm. and they don't really map unless you assume that you're not just reading memory but writing memory like a lot of the most those most interesting points i thought but like writing with memory we actually just talked about it on this podcast right when you were talking about changing the angle and right we're adding music and changing the lighting and curating it. I think that's an interesting thing. That would, I guess, be what writing with memory would mean in the future. But the story doesn't actually talk about that, although I think that's an interesting topic. But I think the other thing that comes up at the end that I did want to very briefly mention because it was part of the story is this like idea of, uh, and I don't know if these words are pronounced correctly or not, Mimi versus Vo. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. So these are words from the uh, tribe's language um, in it's the story. It's the, the Tiv. Uh, in West Africa, yeah. That's right. And oh. I, I didn't, uh, I, I don't know anything about that language, so I don't know how to say those words either. Um, um, yeah, so I'm just going to say Mimi and Vo. Sure. But uh, yeah, so Mimi is like what is right, uh, which is not exactly what is uh, precise, because what is precise is called Vo, right? So there's the distinction between sort of like th- what feels true and what I guess literally is true. Yeah, I mean, right is a slippery word in English, though, too. So because right can also mean what's morally correct, right? So uh, it was that's that was a confusing distinction for me. I kind of skipped over that part of the story because I was like, I don't know what that means. But what did you think it meant? 
Well, I mean, it would. I, I think it's sort of intended to be weird and or confusing, like from the vantage point of people that uh, you know, from from our cultural standpoint, right? right? right. Um, and again, I don't know that any of this is very accurate to the the, the past at all. I think again, a lot of this is fictionalized, right? right? Uh, but the point being that this pre-writing culture has this like these two different versions of true, right? Whereas like today. You know, we don't exactly like we certainly don't codify that we have two versions of true, although we arguably do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I thought that was interesting. I mean, obviously, that just like points to the fact that, you know, you can't spin things as like conveniently in this world. Right. And like, does that d- does that like like sort of like limit you know, our ability to, you know, sort of like shape the present, you know, and make the past a little bit more convenient to what we want to do in the present. But to me, like that seems like not a bad thing. Right. Well, in the story, the, the specifics are that they're trying to decide which of two tribes to align with. And it's accepted by all three tribes that you should align with the tribe that you have closest parental ties to. Um, And they, they know that their parental ties are closer to this one tribe, but the other tribe would be a more, uh, appropriate political ally so they are claiming uh, closer ties to the other tribe and the uh, character goes to go check the paper records to see if uh, when the Europeans first arrived many years ago if they had happened to take any records of this particular factual question he comes to learn through the course of investigating it that the the factual answer is not really the relevant answer but that the political answer is the relevant answer um, but at no time does anybody consider uh, challenging the strange orthodoxy that you should always ally with the tribe that you are most closely related to, right? I mean, at the end of the day, that is the thing that is actually causing problems for them in that moment. Uh, that's not actually that optimal of a way to create um, political alliances, as uh, the world has kind of figured out through trial and error over time. So it's it's like it's shown as limiting. It's like, well, if you are too um, slavishly devoted to the the truth as it is recorded in these pages, then you may miss the political subtlety. But why aren't they just free to pursue their political aims, right? I mean, uh, certainly other cultures in the world um, do not require you to make uh, these false claims about parentage in order to f- enter political alliances. So it's an interesting story because it shows how their culture has uh, compensated for their technological reality. And then when you change their technological reality, um, their culture finds itself holding the bag. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, but it, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I don't think that's exactly the same thing as saying that, like, you know, the technology is both good and bad. I mean, it's writing. It's a it's a clear win. <laughs> it's it's all good. It's 100 percent good there's yeah yeah you know it just requires some cultural adaptation of some kind because it doesn't allow your old workaround uh where you used to forget who your grandfather was to work anymore because now you can't forget that now that's been recorded so you're going to have to find another way um to pursue your aims well so on that note to sort of tie this together and and maybe close out the episode yeah um uh let's give our sort of final review slash Thoughts, but I think um, maybe one of the issues I wanted to get at by bringing this up is that how much does this B story add, right? I mean, it does sort of set the tone in terms of, like you said, writing sort of at the end of the day, the the pros from our perspective clearly outweigh the cons, right? But, Even yeah. sort of trying to see through the eyes of this this uh, these people in West Africa. So 
I mean, I think that does send a clear message about the other story that, you know, probably it's going to be okay with the remem tech. It's probably not something to resist. Well, the narrative is is showing that somebody who was reluctant to adopt it, adopted it, and then learned something about himself that he ultimately decided he wanted to know, right? So the narrative... So maybe they didn't need the... Yeah. ...is already... I mean, they're intended, I think, to uh, echo one another. And to me, the value of the B story was to make a grounded argument that um, technological change is not to be resisted, but to be considered kind of inevitable. Um, and I thought it did that job, um, but it's 50% of the story, so maybe it could have been... It does that with a lot of words, though. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it could have been less of the story and still done that job. I found myself uh, enjoying that part of the story, um, so I didn't have complaints about it, but I think... Uh, in in retrospect, it definitely definitely is not doing the kind of work that the um, that the future part of the story is doing. Well, so what did you? What are your overall like thoughts? Right, like how does this rank as a story in general? How does it rank in terms of the collection and then Ted Chang in general? Uh, I liked this story. It was um, not my absolute favorite in the collection, but I liked it. I was I'd say top two uh, for me. Um, and oh really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I really liked it, and even though the part in the past felt more of like a thematic uh, thing than um, directly meaningful. I agree with that. Uh, I found the rationalist point of uh, celebrate your um, mistakes, at least when you find out about them, (laughs) celebrate that part of it, to be a really interesting uh, point that I hadn't seen done in a story that was from a character point of view before. So I, I, I thought that was a a real achievement. And I generally recommend this collection of stories. I think it's very good as a collection. I think they build on each other and they cover a lot of ground, but I liked that this story uh, balanced, like I said at the beginning, the philosophical and the harder uh, prediction parts. Okay. Okay. I, I like the story too. I, I'm a big fan of Ted Chiang. So uh, uh, anything I say afterwards that might be critical, you know, taking the context of the fact that he is one of my favorite authors, but yeah, it wasn't my favorite, favorite story to read in the collection. Uh, I, I think it made sense to talk about today because it has a lot of these fun speculative elements to talk about yeah. for our podcast purposes. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't, I don't think it would be in my top two. I'd have to go look at the, you know, all the stories together to like give it a ranking. But I, you know, I, I it did feel a little long to me. I got to say, um, I liked the main a plot. I liked that fundamental like message and, and sort of transformation that the narrator goes through quite a lot. But, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guess that, that, yeah, at the end of the day, the B plot didn't do that much for me. Yeah. Right? So maybe maybe that's my big critique. Yeah, um, I, I do I agree mean, with I, that. It's funny. It's similar to our uh, experience with uh, Autonomous, where the A plot wasn't as good as the B plot. That's the danger of having an A-B structure. Of having a two-hander. Yeah, you got to make sure they're equally interesting. And I, I do agree that I would have been fine if this story had started in the past and ended in the past and then you never went back in between, mm. <laughs> right? Like if it had just been like, here's a little story about how writing came to an African village. And then at the end, like, here's the end of that story about how writing came to the African village while well, he burned his papers because he realized this political goal, you know, those were the parts of that story that worked for me. Like a really miniature like story, like to sort of bookend things yep. like thematically. Cause but, that's yeah, what it mostly not... did for me was just give it a thematic frame 
that I think maybe you and I don't need because we're primed to think about this stuff, but I could put myself in the shoes of a regular reader uh, who I thought would be better primed for the story if they were thinking, oh, this is kind of like a new type of writing. You know, if, you, if you're not thinking that, then maybe you're just hand-wringing over it the whole time. And I don't think you want that. So I, I think there was some value to it, but I think I agree with your criticism. It could have been less in the B plot. But at the end of the day, I think we both recommend this and the collection. So next week, specifically, uh, we're going to be talking about another story from this collection uh, called The Life Cycle of Software Objects. It was initially published as a short novella, so it's a bit longer than some of the other stories, but it is very interesting, and uh, there's going to be a lot to talk about. So until next time... I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And you've been listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.